You're listening to the UBC Medicine Learning Network. Welcome to Metamorphosis, a podcast designed to help medical students navigate their medical careers. My name is Adam. My name is Ali, and today we're interviewing Dr. Morgan Price, a family physician from Victoria whose practice focuses on underserved populations in the inner city, among many other interesting projects that he has on the go. Thank you so much for joining us today, Morgan. Thanks, guys. It's great to be here. So if you could just start by telling our our listeners uh, a little bit about yourself. Yeah, so so I'm a family doctor, and uh, as you said, I work in the inner city. I do that part-time, and and my practice is a, a mix of working in a community health center here in Victoria and doing outreach to some of the, the shelters in town here. The other part of my my uh, my day job is as an associate professor at UBC in the Department of Family Practice. And I can do that at a distance, and I work closely then with the Island Medical Program. Wonderful. So a big part of the Metamorphosis podcast is uh, really giving our listeners an understanding of uh, how physicians decide on the specialties they go into. So if you could just start by telling us, how did you decide to go into family medicine? Yeah, that, that's a good story. Um, for for uh, for those of you who are uh, over here on the island, the students, you'll, you'll know Bruce Wright. He's partly to blame for my choice. Um, I think one of the things for me was I, I I liked a lot of different things in in medicine going through my undergrad, and and Bruce was our medical director for student affairs, so I've known him for a long time. Uh, I was at the Family Medicine Forum, which is the annual general meeting for family medicine in um, in Montreal. And I went out to dinner with uh, Bruce and several other family doctors. And it, it was kind of that moment that I realized these are the kinds of people that I could work with. And uh, I ended up waking up the next morning and writing my CARMS letter. I've been struggling with my CARMS letters for ages. And I just wrote it the next morning uh, in Montreal and was done, no problem. Off I went. So I went from like whatever it was, 24, 26 different CARMS applications across three different specialties, just to only family medicine. And and in the end, it really was that that flexibility that I liked and and the relationships with patients. All the other specialties that I was interested in had that as part of their core. And really that is the part of the specialty of family medicine. It's, you know, we're specialists in relationships. So uh, yeah, that that was the moment I decided, and, and Bruce Wright is definitely to blame. So what were some of the other specialties you had considered at that time? So I was looking at uh, uh, internal medicine, specifically oncology. Um, I had a really fantastic psychiatry inpatient service rot- rotation and was super keen on that. And uh, palliative care uh, as a subspecialty across a couple of different you know avenues was was another one. And then I found myself in family medicine and then in the inner city. And what was it about that night or maybe more generally in the whole process of you deciding on a residency program that led you away from something like internal medicine or another specialty and specifically towards family practice? You know, it's it's a good question. I don't want to sort of say I, it turned me away from the others. I think it just turned me more towards the, 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 the culture of the people that, that I was working with. Um, I think as a family doctor, there's a lot of um, roll up your sleeves practicality work that happens. Um, there's a bit of an independent flair too, right? We we sort of 
work in small groups and and uh, although that's that's shifting and I've certainly worked with lots of teams over the years and then just to see the variety of the the people that I was looking at seeing how what is their practice and geriatric medicine in you know inner city medicine hospital not hospital maternity uh, end of life like the whole spectrum it was really cool and then also doing some of the academic side you know lots of the teaching and and then looking at some of the innovation and research, which, which is ultimately where I, I've spent a lot of time. And uh, I think the other part to me at the time, family medicine was undergoing a bunch of change. And that was kind of interesting for me to be involved in the change. So I've, I've actually spent a lot of my time uh, in different places being involved in how do we change primary care. And that's been, that's been cool. So speaking kind of on, on the topic of change, could you maybe tell us about what residency was like when you were going through family medicine? Yeah, so I was at St. Paul's Hospital. Um, many of the UBC students will know that Vancouver-based hospital. Um, it was really cool. Uh, it was a, it was a great. It still is a fantastic residency site, and um, the first year was a bit more rotor, you know, different rotations through the hospital. But but more than half of my my residency, I was connected into a practice where I was there pretty much half time. And so talking about relationship, I was able to really connect with and feel like I was the, the doctor for patients. Now, they, they knew Dr. Andrew was their doctor and had been for 30 years, but I was able to develop the relationships as well. And that was, that was really, really cool, uh, as opposed to jumping in, seeing somebody once, and then, okay, on to the next thing. Um, you know, I saw people for two years straight, and that was huge. It was huge for me. Um, St. Paul's is a really cool hospital. The culture there was very inclusive uh, in so many ways and uh, didn't feel like a, a big tertiary care center. It was still felt very community oriented and that was great as well. I ended up staying at St. Paul's for several years afterwards, both as teaching faculty um, in the residency program and also was the medical director for uh, family practice inpatient services for Providence Health. And so, yeah, definitely a place that I really liked. Didn't, it wasn't like I couldn't wait to leave. I stuck around for quite a while. So you mentioned you were involved in some other roles associated with family practice and the family medicine residency program. Have you noticed that the family medicine residency has changed since your time in it? Absolutely. We had six sites when I was a resident and half the number of residents. Now we have 18 sites and double the number of residents. Um, so it's 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 a much bigger organization, and um, yeah, and, and we have more international medical graduates, and the diversity of uh, opportunities is is huge. It's awesome, and uh, very proudly just got through accreditation um, just last month. So we were all thrilled with that. Well, congratulations! That obviously is uh, an incredible feat. And so, what can you know, some of the listeners who decide to go into family medicine, what can they kind of expect? What kind of experiences can they expect to have uh, as soon as they start that residency program? I think for everybody, residency is a big jump from being a med student. Um, there's that, that, you know, putting on the long white coat. For me, I was a short coat as a med student, long coat as a doctor. And that felt so different, both physically and metaphorically, right? It was like, oh, this is a big symbol. Um, so the autonomy and responsibility goes up quite a bit. Depending on where you are, of course, um, you're going to have different rotations. Some people jump into 
um, specialty rotations, surgical, et cetera, we're trying more and more to make sure people jump into family medicine first. So you really feel like, yeah, I've, I've landed in my specialty, in my, in my discipline. And uh, we've done that here in Victoria. Uh, and I think that's been very successful. So that's my hope for people that you land and you feel like you've landed in your discipline with, with the people around you. Right. Um, and then I, as a, as faculty, and I always look for that time when people start to get a little bit more comfortable with, and, and shift from, I say a little bit more comfortable with the, the long white coat, but you shift from being a student to, okay, I'm a, I'm a physician and you've still got lots to learn and, and you will always have lots to learn. I mean, how much have we learned in the last two weeks, three weeks, six weeks with COVID? Um, you know, it's, it's always a learning process, but there's that, that time when you emotionally shift into, okay, you know, there's, it's not, I'm not a student reporting up to an attending now. I'm, I'm a physician working in a team. And when I was on the wards at St. Paul's working with, with residents, I was always looking to, to help foster that, those moments where that level of autonomy happens. And it's, it's so neat to see people sort of move into that during their residency. Now, you mentioned that the flexibility of family practice was something that was appealing to you as a specialty. Could you talk a little bit about what the spectrum of family practice looks like for someone that's entering that residency program? So the spectrum of the residency program or of practice afterwards? I think it's the practice as a whole. So what kind of things can students look to be doing okay. in a career after the residency? Uh, because I know the, the breadth is pretty immense. It is. It's huge. Um, I think there's lots, uh, um, there's tons of opportunities that probably students aren't always aware of. Lots of things that students are aware of. Um, you know, there, there's sort of several standard third year programs, including uh, a third year in Emerge. There is your office practice. Absolutely. And that, that's sort of, I think, should be a core for all of us. Um, and then uh, branching out from that, I mean, you can, you become a specialist in your practice. Um, and, and you can do uh, a part-time practice with areas of focus outside of the office. So some of that might be working uh, as a surgical assist, or it might be um, covering shifts in the hospital uh, as a hospitalist or, uh, you know, in a, in a smaller eMERGE, for example. Uh, in the community, I, I've done lots of different things, lots of it in the inner city, but uh, I've worked with, um, you know, uh, integrated uh, clinical teams, act teams so you become a, a consultant to to a team as i said i worked in the wards uh, i taught so so a lot of my my work day and work week i've i've always had a component of teaching and, and uh, work with the university i've also been um like a medical director at, at uh, health authorities and uh provided you know i was medical director for primary care and chronic disease. So there's an administrative component if one wants to do stuff like that, looking at how the system's working. So there's lots of things. And that doesn't include research, right? So there's a whole bunch of stuff that, that people do in terms of research as well. But um, in terms of the opportunities for practice, I mean, you can really, really tailor your, your practice and your work life in different ways as a family doctor. And the other part to it is that you can do that over time which is cool. So you can, uh, a colleague of mine, uh, a friend that I work with in clinic was in the inner city for a while. And then he moved into palliative care 
worked in palliative care for a number of years, and then decided he wanted to pull back out again. And he, he, he shifted back into the community. And now he's doing um, a lot of community and a bit of palliative care. So he's doing both. Um, I have other colleagues, they do detox and, and they're on call for detox one week in six. That's part of their workflow. Uh, so yeah, tons of opportunities. And that, I mean, locums, different locations, you know, you can move around and family medicine is very, a very mobile uh, profession too that way. So given all these experiences that you had and, and over time as you were kind of, you know, trying out different things, whether it was teaching or being a medical director, how did you eventually begin to narrow that scope of practice into um, the population that you currently serve? There's a very easy answer, and it was um, uh, somebody got pregnant. Um, uh, it was actually, I was looking for a two-day-a-week practice, and that sounds kind of glib, and a, a good friend, um, a former preceptor of mine, was going on mat leave. And uh, she had a two-day-a-week practice. I was covering the ward at the hospital, uh, which was about a half-time practice. I had a half-day of teaching, and I was looking for about two days of work. And there it was, three blocks from my house, in a clinic that I had, I had, had worked in as, as a resident, and I could do a year of, of, um, of a mat leave. And it was in the inner city, and I never left. So that's how I got into the inner city. Uh, certainly at St. Paul's, obviously, that was part of the population that was in and around St. Paul's. But my, my preceptor's office certainly was not an inner city practice. It was a very traditional uh, family doctor, family practice. But then I ended up sort of moving across into the inner city and really liked it. And what was it about that practice that made you stick around for so long afterwards? So, yeah, so so I think, you know, there's a couple things. I mean, my patients, it's about the relationships and I, I can develop really, uh, how do I just describe this? So the relationships that anyone has with their patients is very strong. And, and I think in the inner city, um, there's a lot of intensity to one's life there and and being able to be present for people who need that intensity is really important, and I enjoy that. Uh, obviously, sometimes it's incredibly stressful, and and there's t- times where that you know it's, it's it's really hard work, but it's also really re- rewarding because you can see people change. Um, one patient got mad at me one day. I remember this is now this isn't every patient, but I had one person who was complaining to me about her statistics professor, and I was just I started to smile and laugh. And she got mad at me because I was I was kind of laughing at her, and I said, "No, no, I'm not laughing at you, but but I'm smiling and laughing because you're complaining." And and let me just remind you of where we started. Right? You you were living on the street. You were you were a prostitute at the time. You had hepatitis C. You hadn't finished school. You hadn't talked to your family. Now you you don't have Hep C. You gone back to school. You have a place to live, you're connected with your family, and you're complaining about your stats professor. So yeah, I'm happy for you. Uh, and then to kind of in that context, she's like, yeah, okay. Yeah, he's still a jerk though. <laughs> and I was like, okay, absolutely. Uh, to see that kind of change, even if it's only once in a while, is huge. So that's a big piece. The other part for me is is the people that I work with. And I have been just so lucky to have two amazing clinics that I've really called home. And uh, one of them is Three Bridges in Vancouver, and the other is the Kool-Aid Community Health Center in Victoria. And they're just 
the cultures there, the people there are just awesome. So that makes it also so possible. And uh, don't ever want to kind of leave that, right? That's a really impactful story. And thanks for sharing that. I know it really resonates with me and for our listeners as well. Other other people probably have complained about their stats profs too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I think we've all been there. Um, I was I was wondering if you could speak a bit more about the work that goes on at those two clinics that you mentioned, Kool-Aid and Three Bridges. Yeah, I, I, probably better to talk about Kool-Aid uh, than Three Bridges just because it's been so long since I've been at Three Bridges. You know, it's been over, you know, almost 15 years since I left. So, um, but, but in some ways, very similar. So both, both clinics are multidisciplinary clinics. Kool-Aid itself is a not-for-profit. It's been around for over 50 years, uh, not in its current form. Uh, it started off sort of giving free care and, and, uh, uh, I think one evening a week in the basement of a of a theater here in Victoria. And now it's a, a full clinic. We're open six days a week. We do outreach. We have uh, 10 doctors part-time and then um, about two to three full-time nurses. Well, it's more nurses, but full-time equivalents, three pharmacists, dietitian, I'm going to forget people, acupuncture, physio, our amazing front staff, um, our admin staff, if psychiatry, internal medicine, and infectious disease that all come and do inreach. Uh, and we've got people in part-time as researchers. Uh, it's, it's an amazing group. And, uh, and we support about 4,500 people here in Victoria. We do things from all of your standard primary care stuff and then a focus on our population. So we do a lot of, uh, opioid agonist therapy, HIV care. We've been running hep C, a hep C program in primary care for years, very successful. Uh, we do, like I said, outreach to the shelters uh, and other supportive housing. And then Kool-Aid as an organization actually has many different housing projects, and that's really what they do in the community health center, sort of an, an addition to that. So we support those as well. That sounds incredible. So how does having such an interdisciplinary team um, how much of an impact does that make to your patient population in particular? Oh, it's huge. Um, you know, so so the, that's the core team that I mentioned, but also then we have people that work in outreach and the people who work in the facilities. Um, and so they're part of sort of an extended team. So there's so many different ways that uh, that, that helps. I often think about, I mean, trust is a really important thing as a provider, right? So, um, you know, I, as a patient, have to trust my doctor. Uh, and if I don't, I'm probably not going to follow the advice or fill out the prescription or, um, you know, all sorts of other things, right? Uh, Kool-Aid as an organization has such trust in our community that that spills over to the the rest of the team. And so I remember when I first started working there, I, I kind of inherited some of that and then developed my own personal trust with people. But that's a huge piece of it. And then in terms of the services that we can get to people, we can do so much more in-house and they'll trust it because it's in, in part of Kool-Aid versus we're going to send you up the road to the hospital that they don't trust always. Um, and it's not to say that we've got a great hospital and everything like that, but for some, some of our patients, for many of our patients, it's really hard to get there, even though it's physically quite easy to get there. So being able to provide that wraparound service is just huge for our patients. 
from wound care to, like I said, hep C treatment, HIV care, mental health. And we've got a mental health team that's embedded in our clinic and it's just great. So yeah, so it's, it's, it's a big thing for us. Um, I will also add, uh, I knew I was going to forget a couple there. We have the, as far as I know, the first ever genetic counselor working in primary care in our clinic this year as part of a research study. So it's quite cool. Oh, that's really interesting. Um, how, how have you found integrating the genetic counselor into your practice? How's that gone? It's, it's good. Um, and yet also really crazy because it's very early in the year and then we have a pandemic. So it's a little different than we thought, but, uh, what we're seeing is uh, support for some of our patients with mental health issues to provide some additional uh, understanding of that combination and interplay of genetics and environment. Uh, and also some of our patients with, with rare disease, getting some additional support to better understand their conditions. And when we're going to expand it, because obviously this is, just, this is a research project, we've never done this before. So post COVID, we will then, um, try to do some other chronic disease and look at it from that genetic counselor's lens. Okay. That sounds great. So obviously you've seen some success with having such an interdisciplinary team in your practice. Uh, do you think that this is kind of a model that family practice is going to continue to move towards in the future? Yeah. I don't even think in the future. Um, so with my other hat on as a, as an academic, um, one of the things that I've been involved with is our primary care innovation support unit, which was set up at UBC and part of the Department of Family Practice. That's another interdisciplinary team. And um, one of the things that we've been working on is supporting the, the current change in primary care to look at more team-based practice. So we're working with the ministry, we're working with communities, we're working with divisions of family practice in those communities to explore things related to team-based care and how it can be implemented and implemented well. We know outside of BC for sure, and, and inside BC too, that uh, team-based practice can really enhance care. It can improve the relationship that, that providers have with their patients. It can um, improve continuity. It can do a whole bunch of things, but it can also be implemented badly. So it's about that combination of, of implementing and doing a good job. And that's really what we're trying to do and help with. So I, I've been a, a firm believer in, in various kinds of team-based care, but you also want to do it right. So when it comes to team-based care, like you mentioned, what do you see as the role for a family practitioner in that huge multidisciplinary team? So I don't think it's a huge team. Um, you know, I think when you look at our clinic, we're, we're big, but I think a patient's team is their circle of care. And... And what's really important is that that team is, is only as big as it needs to be. And if we have more team in primary care, so in a clinic like ours, then what we're actually doing is somewhat collapsing that circle of care. So instead of going to the home care nurse for the foot care, at the, or sorry, the home care nurse for the wound care and the, the diabetes nurse for the foot care, um, you come to the clinic. And then... You know, I think the huge advantage is that um, not only is it just relationship continuity and continuity management within the team and, you know, everyone accesses the same record and all that stuff, but there's continuity of relationship across the team members. That inter-provider uh, relationship is key. So when Anne tells me she's worried about a patient, 
my blood pressure goes up 20 points. My heart rate goes just skyrockets and I know something's really wrong. And why? Because I know Anne. I've known her for 15 years and I know she's seen tons of stuff and she doesn't get worried. And if she's worried, then I'm really worried. Okay. As opposed to somebody else I might work with that, um, you know, I don't, I, if I don't know their threshold, I'm not sure how to respond. And as I know how Anne works and how Roz and Kelly and, you know, everybody in the team, I'm going to be a better provider because I can judge that. So I think, this, you know, the, that idea that so many people, it's actually, it's not, there's going to be sort of a natural size to it, but you're also working with the same people regularly. So that actually creates a smaller group and a, and a more cohesive group. So I think that's pretty, pretty important. Now, you brought up, obviously, the the recent pandemic. And so I think what Adam and I are definitely curious to hear about is how this has impacted your patient population, uh, given that they are coming to your clinic for all of these different interdisciplinary needs. Yeah, it's I don't know how it's impacted because every day is different. So we had a team huddle this morning. I joined remotely. Um, so we do a, a team huddle now 15 minutes every morning. Um, not everybody attends if you're not working that day. And of course, I only work part-time, but I was I was on this morning. And, um, you know, new policy came out last night, right? New new guide uh, guidances came out the day before uh, for our population. And, and you know, we, we need to decide, do we do this? Don't we do this? Is it appropriate? Isn't it? Can we implement it if it's appropriate or not? Um, I don't know how it's changing everything. I mean, a lot of stuff right now, a lot more phone calls. And not all of our patients have ready access to phones, so it's tricky. We've really tried to push off a lot of the routine non-urgent care just in order to keep surge capacity. Some of our team, because we're, you know, we all are working, most of us in different locations or part-time in different ways. I do some academic work and then I do my clinical. Others, the balance is part-time hospitalist, part-time clinic. And one of our our hospitalist colleagues, he's on the COVID ward. So he can't come back to our clinic because now he's isolated. That completely changes things. Um, the other thing I'm working on today is trying to figure out how to get uh, virtual kiosks into um, the shelters to see if we can get uh, some way of, of securing uh, essentially you know, telehealth into into a shelter is it doable totally doable but you know now that we're on the middle of this it's it's suddenly no time to plan and much harder but but it's so it's changing in so many different ways right now um trying to think about how we can provide care to people we ask them to socially isolate but they don't have a home right uh or the the shelter it, it, you you can't physically keep people two meters apart because it's just so small uh, so these are real, real challenges that we're trying to work through. And e each day it's a new thing. You mentioned a lot of changes coming with the pandemic that's happening right now. And I was wondering if you see these changes to the field extending beyond when we eventually have this under control. Yeah. Yeah. So um, we just, we put out a survey across our department and our department's several thousand uh, members. We have the biggest department that I know of at least in North America, and that is um, because we have so many teaching faculty. So we put out a survey last week in the context of COVID and, and the pandemic, and you know, what are your stresses, what are your concerns? And, and uh, one of the questions we asked was, what do you think is gonna change long-term? 
I think one of the things that's come out, uh, other than say better hand washing is uh, virtual care. So many people ourselves included are suddenly having to pivot over to virtual care in a 24 hour, 48 hour space, make the decision and off you go. But I think if this persists, which it looks like it will for, for a while, that'll be more routine and people who have gotten over the hurdle of, oh gosh, it was tough to figure it out, but I kind of done it now. So I think that's going to be a piece of it. Um, I, I don't, I think some stuff will just sort of, will float back and, oh, thank goodness we can go back to the way it was. But I, I do think there's going to be some of the things that we've implemented in terms of uh, better isolation of patients that are, are coming in with certain symptoms and things like that, that we haven't necessarily done in our practices. We'll, we'll have those policies in place. And I think people will um, be more familiar and comfortable with virtual care. And I think our patients will probably expect and, and uh, um, demand the convenience of it. I, I had a virtual visit with my doc uh, last week. And, you know, you're in the midst of stuff, you're checking your watch, you're like, okay, I got I to gotta log in. And um, he was a couple minutes late, but, uh, you know, so much easier than hopping on my bike and heading up to his office and then sitting in the waiting room for a while. And, um, and that, that particular visit didn't need to be, I didn't need a physical assessment. So it was perfect. Um, now doing that for all of our patients is going to be a very different kind of practice. And I don't think that's going to be the reality of things, but I think we're, we're certainly going to be doing more of that. So it sounds like one thing that won't change with virtual health visits is patients having to wait for their physicians to, to show up to their appointment. <laughs> Although he did text me in the middle of it, uh, in, in the app to say, uh, just, just wrapping up with somebody else. Oh, that's great. So, um, so yeah, so I was able to multitask with some other stuff. Absolutely. It. it was, it was only about 10 minutes. And so how has it been, you know, you mentioned you, you've done some, uh, telephone, uh, telephone visits with your patients. Uh, how have you found that and what have you found challenging about it? So for me, the hard part is coordination, particularly in the shelter. So how the shelter work for me has been going up until two weeks ago was I go there and I put up a piece of paper on the door and people put their name on the piece of paper and they walk past and they see the signs up and they decide, oh, you know, I need to see somebody about that. So it's really, you know, we try to keep it as low barrier as possible. And if I'm, if they're not seeing a patient, the door's open and somebody could just walk up and tap on the door. Now with the virtual care, it's kind of a bit of a rigmarole to get an appointment I mean, not that it's any different than a, a general office, right? Call, make an appointment, the doctor will call you back. But a lot of my patients weren't doing that, and that's why we're going out to the shelter. So what I'm trying to do now is recreate that. So can we actually set it up so that there's, you know, effectively there's a room and I'm on a screen instead of there in person? And I can say, hey, come on in, right? So that's kind of what I'm going to try to recreate. But But really it's that... Um, it's not that people don't need to be seen, but it's that barrier to entry that you know, we try to lower in our practice and then lower even more by doing outreach. And that barrier to entry has kind of gone up a bit because I'm not physically wandering around the common area saying, hey, does anybody need to see a doctor right now? Not that I usually have time when I'm there to wander around and ask people. I usually have you know, 15, sometimes 20 people in a morning so it's pretty busy, um, but uh, but it is it is easier for people again just to kind of come in and say, yeah, I've been thinking about this for a while, and I'm now is the moment I'm going to ask. 
and that's harder now. And so when you are doing these telephone consults, um, what do you miss out on when you aren't able to complete a physical exam and you aren't able to yeah, physically so, be there with the patient? I mean, the physical exam stuff is kind of the obvious thing, right? How red is that rash? Is it raised or is it bump? You know, it's hard to do that on history and it's so fast to do with physical exam. So once we get cameras in place, it'll be different uh, for some of that stuff. I mean, obviously, you know, auscultation, et cetera, not going to happen, um, at least not right now in our population. But the other part that's more subtle is the, the non-official physical exam piece. So patient walks in the room. Like, you always hear that as a student, right? Your, your exam starts as soon as you see the patient. Um, that doesn't happen. So I, how quickly did they move? When I called them, were they attentive? Were they not attentive? Were they slumped over? Were they not slumped? Like those are things that are really important for me to observe. And, and actually, in my shelter practice, I might be observing somebody multiple times out in the common area before I end up seeing them because they're just hanging out there and I can see their sort of ebb and flow through the morning. Um, that, that gives me lots of information that I'm not going to get with a virtual visit. Uh, the other thing is the body language when I share information. So, you know, I, I want to talk to you about your results. And then they suddenly they go, you kind of see that tenseness comes up. Right? But you can see it. Um, and you can't hear on the phone necessarily sometimes, but not really. Um, and you, so, so I'll pivot on that and say, okay, you know, but I, I don't want you to be worried because it's mostly good stuff here. There's one thing I want to talk about, but I'm not worried, but I just want to, I feel because of my own OCD, I need to talk to you about this, right? And like, oh, okay, good. It's just you being, you know, being a doctor and you need to tell me about something, but you're not worried. Versus other body languages sort of like, okay, let's get on with it, right? So that stuff's harder. And, and having done lots of virtual work, not necessarily virtual care, um, I'm comfortable on the phone and comfortable on video, but my patients aren't as much. So that I think is also hard. So they might not share quite the same way. Um, and, I, and, and I guess the flip to that, and I'm sorry, I'm rambling a bit. The flip to that is that they don't see my body language. And I, I tend to communicate a lot, um, both you know with my hands, but also with my, my body, like when I turn and I look to somebody and listen and I nod and, you know, the eyebrows go a certain way or I smile a bit. Or those things, you know, you're not going to see uh, on a phone, obviously, and you, you, you'll catch a bit of it on video, but, but um, you catch a lot more video, but not, not quite as much. So th I think that's, a, that's the other piece is that I think the patients aren't as comfortable with it yet. Um, younger generation, sure, but, um, you know, my practice, they don't have access to lots of video um, group chats and stuff like so that. So it sounds like some of the problems are associated with losing the nuances of patient care. But what do you think that the balance between virtual versus inpatient care will look like when we're yeah. eventually able to get back to the routine that we're a little bit more familiar with? I, I, I think we'll, well, the pendulum will swing back. Um, I don't think it'll swing back to where we were. That'd be my guess. And, and I, it is a guess right now. Um, I think, and I think it'll vary, right? So I think some people will be, thank gosh, I never have to sit in front of that screen ever again. Um, and some patients will be, oh, thank goodness I can go see my doctor. I'm never going to phone them again. Right? And there'll be another population of people, providers and patients that say, you know what? I can do this phone visit. I can do this video conference visit from my desk at work. And that saves me $10 in parking and I don't have to get you know, a note from the doctor to go see the doctor to get my pills. 
and I just need to review that blood work. And I think that population, we're going to see some, some efficiencies in care because that, I mean, efficiencies in, in one's own life in terms of travel, et cetera, but also efficiencies in care because you might be able to put a few more of those visits together. They tend to be a little bit shorter. Um, but you also might get a bit more of that, uh, that intermittent contact because it's, it's much easier, it'll feel much easier to do a five-minute consult uh, virtually than to book a whole visit just to review something. So I w- and again, this is a guess, but I, I would guess that you're going to see more for some population of patients, a, a group, that there's going to be that, I won't, I won't follow up unless it's really bad news you know, for your test, but now I'm going to follow up with you just to touch base and say it's okay and remind you to keep going on that exercise because the capacity might be there because you can just sort of, it's a short, small visit. So I, I think that think that we might see some of that, but not for everybody. What I hope we don't see uh, candidly is that it, it sort of, the, the virtual walking clinics just pop up and then nobody sees their family doctor anymore virtually or in person, because that relationship continuity we know is so, so important to getting good quality care, right? The fact that I've known patients for 15 years or longer is important because I know when I'm, when I see them and I'm worried, but a walk-in clinic doctor might look at them and go, oh my gosh, and do a whole bunch of stuff. I'm like, yeah, that's, they're actually doing pretty good today compared to three years ago. Um, and so my threshold is, is different, um, and, and the reverse, of course. So, so I hope that that doesn't happen. So you obviously have experiences, you know, working, um, within UBC's curriculum for family practice. I'm wondering if you see any of these changes working their way into the curriculum, are we going to have exposure to being able to, um, you know, work over the phone, work over, um, virtual health in, in that sort of way? Yeah. So for sure, it's already happening. Um, for med students right now, obviously at UBC, you know, clinical stuff has stopped. For residents, uh, still seeing patients, which is important, and a lot of that's gone to virtual in primary care. So they're they're adapting and moving in at the same time. Some of our preceptors have said it's great the residents have helped with the transition because they're more comfortable. Uh, so you know, it's the, the beauty of of uh, being a student uh, and being a resident is that the, you know you learn as you go and you teach as you go. So it's one of those opportunities to teach your preceptors. So yeah, absolutely. Those, those opportunities will be there. Um, and when I started as faculty, my first position was as site faculty for informatics and then lead faculty for informatics in, in family medicine. And it was sort of the first time that position had ever kind of existed in uh, a residency program. And at that point, the curriculum was how to use PowerPoint. And that was somehow informatics. And I was like, no, no, wait a second. This is about electronic records, telehealth, and all that stuff. So we, we totally changed the curriculum and um, started to teach people about information. We're knowledge users. you got to use information. And, and so certainly this is part of it. You know, t- telehealth and virtual care is definitely part of that. So given your experience in informatics, what other ways do you think that that will be used in family practice in the future? I know you've mentioned telehealth and electronic medical records becoming a lot more prevalent. I was wondering if you think of any other things that are coming down the informatics pipeline. So there's a lot. Yeah. So, I mean, um, we, I didn't talk all about 
things that I've done, but but yeah, informatics is kind of my my uh, research area. Clinical informatics, so less sort of bioinformatics, but more the clinical side of things. And there's a lot of pieces in there. I and mean, bioinformatics is huge. Don't get me wrong; it's important, and there's a you know lots of stuff there. But from the clinical side, things that fascinate me that are going to come down. Um, it's it's big data, um, and not so much in kind of the uh, you know let's let's pull all the stuff off the web and start churning through big data so we can figure out. But but more the the big data of an individual. So if I if I went to my GP today and said, here are all my data points uh, for the last six months, it, he wouldn't know what on earth to do. Um, and it's not, I, I mean, I track a bunch of things because I guess I, I, I do that, but, but um, most of the data would be things like my accelerometer in my phone, the watch that I wear that also checks my heart rate many times a day. Um, that automatically tracks my sleep patterns if I remember to wear my watch. Um, you know, all that stuff is coming together. Like forget omics for the moment. Let's just think about consumer health, right? Yeah. Uh, all these consumer devices that are being attached and wearables and stuff. Um, when that starts to flow into the clinic, we're not going to be able to to handle that unless we know we've got these these sophisticated tools that help interpret and surface the things that are important. So that's a big part of, I think, where informatics is going to be helping us. The other side is the between-visit stuff. So um, there may be things that my GP wants to know about, and I don't think to make an appointment to say that, you know, my sleep patterns have been off for the last two months, and um, my weight has dropped below a certain point, and he would never know that, but maybe in a... Um, interconnected, interoperable space, those things would trigger um, a recommendation to me and a recommendation to him. And so some, somebody, maybe not, maybe not my GP to start with, but maybe one of the team members would say, hey, we just noticed that some stuff has shifted for you lately. Um, I mean, today, we don't even track if you got your blood work or not properly, right? So I want you to get your blood work in six months. There's no sort of standard mechanism to say, Oh, you missed your blood work. You're, you know, you missed your HIV blood. Okay, that's a bad example. There is actually, a, <laughs> there's a provincial system that sort of manually run for HIV blood tests, but, but like other stuff, we don't get triggered for that. Now, in a more proactive world, wouldn't it be cool to say, oh, not only did you miss your blood work, but yeah, you're not sleeping well, you've lost weight. Um, we know you have a history of X and Y. Let's just connect before it gets serious, right? Um, that stuff, I think, is going to be really interesting. And that proactive care, that prevention, and that wellness side of things will be enabled. And then when you move it to more, uh, um, I want to say more serious, but but um, more into the chronic disease management space, frailty and areas like that are going to be really important. So we've done some studies and worked with some some industry partners around like in-home monitoring uh, for people who are frail, um, in-home monitoring for seniors for safety. Um, and you can you can start to pull those data together and, and look for patterns and go, oh, all of a sudden you are getting up seven times a night. Rather than wait until that person is delirious with an infection in the hospital, right? Maybe that prompts a, a call from one of the nurse, nurses on the team 
to check out what's going on and realize, oh, it's the start of a bladder infection. Let's deal with that today, as opposed to in hospital, you know, 10 days from now. That stuff's going to be huge too. So yeah, I hopefully that answers your question. Absolutely. And so I know I'm going to bring up a story, a new story that I know you're aware of, but there's a manufacturer in the States that produces smart thermometers and, and they obviously track uh, the yeah. flu on a yearly basis. And sometimes they're even quicker to uh, track the flu than the CDC. So in terms of uh, speaking on big data, how do you think that embracing big data can, can help in addressing a pandemic situation like the one we're currently in? Yeah. So, um, so not all is is roses in that question because not every patient realizes that that or they maybe didn't read the the description of the, of the end user agreement that that their data is being tracked in a certain way and that's a concern um but uh you know this particular example you talked about it's a, a smart thermometer that connects to your your smartphone but they upload the results along with time and location probably some more data to their own cloud and they're able to do some analysis and, and they're actually with that able to start making some predictions that given the flu pattern, they're seeing some new hotspots for, for um, febrile illness that seems to be predictive of some of the outbreaks for, for the pandemic in the US. That's the positive side, of course. The negative side is that some of that data may either get breached or be uh, shared inappropriately to um, you know, to the likes of other companies that are linking other data together and suddenly you get ads or what have you, or worse. So not all um, roses in that sense, but there's potential there that I think is worth uh, continuing to explore. There are ways, and we've, we've explored some of this in our lab, of um, it's not even encryption, but it is fragmenting the data in ways that it, um, it is impossible to bring it back down to an individual while still answering the questions that you want to answer. So uh, we built a, a primary care research network a number of years ago where we didn't collect any data. And it was really, really hard for ethics um, because they said, well, so how are you de-identifying the data? And we said, well, we're not. And so, well, you have to. I said, well, no, no, we can't. I said, no, you have to. I said, well, we, we don't have any data to de-identify. I said, well, no, but you're running a network. Yeah, yeah, we're running a network, but, but we're not collecting any data. <laughs> And they went, I mean, obviously I was explaining it better. I'm explaining it sort of in a silly way this way, but um, instead of collecting individual patient row data, we were collecting aggregate answers to questions and we were querying at the source. So we had this distributed data network and it's, it's more routine now than it was then. But, um, but yeah, so we were able to query and then get summary answers back. So it was already aggregated. So we didn't have anything individualized. I think you can do that in a much more sophisticated way now. And and that's where we're going to have. Um, that's really interesting. It seems like there's a lot of different opportunities for big data and the use of informatics in a clinical setting that we might even see by the time we're in residency. So that's really exciting to, to hear about. Something mm -hmm. I'm curious about uh, from your perspective and given your background in informatics, what might you recommend for our listeners that are looking to get a bit more familiar with informatics and big data, given the changes that we might see in the near future? So I'm, I'm wondering how students might get a bit more involved with, with these types of things. Yeah, it's a, I don't, it's a good question. I'm not quite sure how to answer. There's so much, right? Um, 
so there's there's two ways to answer like so looking at what's current and um getting a sense and having a familiarity with some of the, what's possible playing with the tools testing them out looking at options as you learn clinically that's really important and uh finding mentors about how did you use that how do you use that well uh there's certainly lots of um lots of providers out there that have translated skills on paper to what I've affectionately called the electronic paper record, which is essentially, they, you know, it's like a, they've used their EMR, but it's essentially like kind of like a Word document and they've hacked in bits here and there because it's convenient, but it actually breaks how the EMR was designed. So yeah, like, uh, you know, we wanted to do this with immunization, so, but instead we put them over here um, and we just used this code because it was easy to remember. And then, and then, you know, two sentences later, somebody tells me, yeah, this EMR is broken. Like it gives me all these reminders for immunizations. And I, I mean, all my patients are up to date, but it just keeps telling me to give them immunizations. I'm like, well, that's because you didn't record them in the immunization module. So there's, I mean, do, do as, don't do as I do, right? But do as I say kind of thing. Um, look at how to do it well. So there's that part, but the tools are going to change. So the, the, the long-term answer uh, for for those of us who have years in our career to go, and hopefully I still do, and you do, uh, have many years, is thinking about it from a from a learning and cognition perspective. So, what do you need to do to make the right decisions? And how does the computer, how does the system help you make decisions? So, and that's going to change over time. The decisions are still going to need to be made. And how can you get help through the system? The system broadly. So, you know, how do I get help? I, I'll ask a colleague, right? You phone a friend. You'll do all those things. And increasingly, technology is going to be one of the components of that system, not just as a recording device, but now to, to say, oh, actually, the last time that person had penicillin, they had a little trouble breathing. So don't just to cancel that prescription. Like that's basic. And we're going to get more and more sophisticated. So thinking about how one needs to make a decision and the kinds of decisions you need to make is, is really a key part to it too. So being familiar with the technology and that's going to change all the time, but then also thinking about you're a knowledge user, right? Like the, 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 the knowledge of medicine is so vast and deep and we need to know how to manage that knowledge better and better. So taking that stance, technology is going to change. The phone's going to get bigger or smaller, or it's going to be double-sided or it's going to fold or whatever. But Knowing how you want to make decisions and the kinds of information you need to make that, that's when you're going to say, actually, you know what, we need to have, I need, I need, you know, Betty's home to be wired up with sensors because the decisions we need to make are, is she safe at home? Is she sleeping well? Is she getting up in the middle of the night? Is she opening the front door on her own? Um, so that, those are decisions we need to make to decide whether or not she can stay at home. And the only way we're going to know that is by using some of these tools. So it's about decision-making, I think, at the end of the day. So one thing that I wanted to circle back to that you mentioned very early on when we started the interview um, was how big of a shift there is when someone is transitioning from medical school to residency. And obviously you've mentioned that we can expect a lot of changes mm -hmm. just from the delivery front in terms of telehealth and tools that we'll be using. But what do you think that students can tangibly do while they're in medical school to prepare for that transition and make sure that it's not as big of a jump as it may be for a lot of people? So there's a, there's a lot of transitions you're going to go through, right? So a big one being going into clerkship, that's huge. Um, you know, going from a, from a textbook to a, to a real patient. And obviously you're seeing real patients now 
Um, but that I think is, that is a, a big shift when it's, it's flipped. So you're spending so much more time with patients. It's super exciting and it's great. And, and hopefully everybody who makes that shift is going to be overwhelmed, but you're also gonna be really pleased to be out of the classroom and, and, and out in the real world. Right. Um, making the shift into residency. Well, there's a big point, right? Where you suddenly, you are now a resident. It is definitely a transition over your clerkship to, to increasing autonomy and then through your residency again. And it's a big shift to jump out, out of residency into, to practice. And you're like, okay, now I'm in it. I'm an attending. I'm the attending. How did that happen? So all the way through there, you're going to get opportunity for increased responsibility. So seize those. That's it. Um, jump ahead to thinking about management plans. You know, when you first start seeing patients, you know, it's about, oh, how do I take history? What questions do I ask? Oh, good. I've got, okay, there's seven signs. How many signs are there for liver disease? Okay. I need to ask them. I remember them because I have a, you know, right? You're at that stage. But whenever you can kind of jump forward a little bit and think about what would I do if I had to make the decision? What are the options here? What's the diagnosis? What are, then what's the treatment? Um, that helps get you there. The other one is um, in, in the rotations, you can, you have opportunity to, to see patients longitudinally seize that. Um, that is so important. I mean, I talked earlier about relationship. Medicine is all about relationship, right? And so being able to follow patients through trajectory, uh, be it, you know, diagnosing the appendicitis and emerge, getting up to the, the OR, seeing them post-op and discharging them. Like that's a, an arc that is really important. It's not just about the procedure in the middle. It's about the whole piece. That's where you get to see the change. And in family medicine, of course, you have much longer arcs typically for, for things. Um, but finding those opportunities, can I, and, and if you're proactive as a, as a student, asking your preceptors, can I follow up with that person? That's huge. And as a preceptor, I love to hear that because it means you're engaged, right? Um, and, and in fact, I love that question more than, so, so what are the seven stigmata of liver disease? Because I'll only remember that there's four of them. Um, but, but I'll also bend over backwards to say, yeah, actually, you know what? Let's make sure that patient comes back here. You're here for how many weeks? Great. Okay. Well, I would normally bring them back in four weeks, but I'll bring them back in three. That way you can see them. And then you get to see what happens. And, or I'll phone you. I'll say, yeah, we got the CT scan and let's go over it together. Like that's the, that's where you really learn. And then you'll ask the question, okay, so what are you going to do? Right. Um, that's, that's where you're going to get to that next level of learning. So any advice to a student would be follow a patient and follow as many as you can. I was really lucky in, in, in med school, some of it random. Um, I had, I had one, um, patient in my first block, which was family medicine who came in with, uh, first trimester bleeding and, uh, worked it all up and, and saw her a little bit during the beginning of her pregnancy. And then she, uh, of course stayed with her family doctor and I went off on different rotations. And then I eventually say nine months later, but not quite nine months later, I went on my obstetrical rotation and my first day she had just delivered the baby. So cool to be able to see, um, the family now, right? That was so neat. Um, I had a, a paranoid patient who I saw in the psych ward who, um, unfortunately had some, some other conditions I ended up seeing on the oncology ward later on. I actually saw several times 
in, in actually in different rotations, which was very odd. And for her, she was paranoid and thought I was following her. Um, I wasn't, but I happened to be right. Um, and, and yet that was also really important to be able to see the trajectory. So that, that's, that's what I would, I would recommend. I think that's really important. And thank you for sharing that. I know I personally found that really useful and I'm, I'm sure those listening will as well. As we come towards the end of our episode today, I'm curious about what advice you might have for those students that have started to consider family medicine or at least have it on the radar, but haven't quite made up their minds yet. Keep considering. Uh, definitely think about it. It's it's a it's a really um, I would say it's fun. It's important. It is rewarding. It is all those things. Um, you know, we are we are in a spot right now where we do need more family doctors, of course. So the needs there, and it's changing. If you like that idea of of creating your own space and looking to create and change, you know, the, the biggest part of our healthcare system um, in terms of you know medical specialties then it's a great opportunity to jump in. And, uh, and yeah, you know, I think one of the other things for people at the end of the day is if you like a lot of things, then, then family medicine is, is a great place to enjoy lots of stuff. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I definitely keep considering it and, uh, it's, it's a great place to be. I think that's wonderful advice. And, and I think many of our listeners are going to be able to resonate with that, especially being in first year and either knowing exactly what you want to do or having absolutely no clue at all and finding every subsequent week very interesting. Um, we also know that in addition to all the things that you've mentioned that you do today, you also have a podcast of your own. So I was wondering if you wanted to tell our listeners a bit about that. Sure. So we are about to have a podcast. We recorded our first episode this morning, just before this. We're calling it Primary Care in a Pandemic. And our innovation support unit is just putting together this short series to try to look at some of the issues. In fact, some of the stuff we talked about today about you know, how is primary care changing in the, in the context of this pandemic and what tangible tools you can do, you can apply in your practice today to try to help out with uh, all this change. So uh, it's going to come out through the UBC um, MedIT network. If I have the graphics done up and hopefully once we get the first episode edited, it'll be up next week. That's very exciting. I know I'm really looking forward to taking a listen to that. Me, me too. And so that's all the time we have today. So once again, I wanted to extend a sincere thank you to Dr. Morgan Price for joining us virtually today. And be sure to turn into his podcast, Primary Care in a Pandemic. As for us, you can find more episodes of Metamorphosis on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. On behalf of the entire Metamorphosis team, my name is Adam. And my name is Ali. We thank you for joining us. Please take care and remember to wash your hands. Thanks, guys. It was fun. This has been a presentation of the UBC Medicine Learning Network. 